Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. Now, I'm guessing that like me, many of you out there adore nature documentaries. And when you're watching these shows, you notice that color is everywhere in the natural world. In fact, it's such a large part of biology that an incredible amount of research effort has gone into trying to decipher animal colour patterns. Where they come from, the selective forces driving them, their genetic, molecular and structural bases. But, to be honest, most of this effort has gone into just a few species. And today, we're not really interested in them. Because increasing numbers of papers are turning their focus to the genetic, ecological and evolutionary origins of colour polymorphisms in wild, non-model species. And one of those papers was recently featured in Heredity titled Inheritance, Distribution, and Genetic Differentiation of a Colour Polymorphism in Panamanian Populations of the Tortoise Beetle. I was fortunate enough to bag an interview with lead author Lynette Strickland, a PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a pre-doctoral fellow at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. Lynette is embarking on what appears to be a long research career focused on tortoise beetles. So, clearly, we had to start by figuring out exactly why animal coloration is so interesting and why it's worth dedicating so much of your research effort to. Personally, I'm fascinated by color variation. One, it just tends to be very aesthetically pleasing. But two, it tends to be very discreet. And it's typically very easily affected by both environmental or other ecological factors um, and also typically have a relatively simple genomic basis. So these things together just make color really easy in general to study how these sort of extrinsic factors and intrinsic genomic factors work together to sort of shape the diversity that we see in nature. So, I mean, you're using this one particular species of beetle that you were sampling in Panama. Obviously, coloration is a very visual thing and we can't see the beetles. So maybe you could just describe what they look like and what makes them so interesting to study. Yes, definitely. So these beetles are pretty small. They're about the size of a fingernail, say your thumb fingernail. And they have this variation of red, black, and metallic coloration. So some of them are striped. And if they're striped, they're striped with either red and black or red and metallic. And then some of them are completely red. So individuals fall into one of these discrete classes. I'm really fascinated by these beetles. I first found them, um, well, when I was hiking in, in Panama with my collaborator and advisor, Dr. Don Windsor, and I was just enamored by the color variation immediately. And that's why I sort of decided, oh, what are what are the genetics of this different color variation? Nice. Do we know ecologically what's driving this color diversification within these beetles? Mm, That's a great question. So that's one that also fascinates me as well. I mean, I'm mostly just fascinated by the system in general. But um, so I'm looking at a couple of different avenues, um, both sexual selection and predation. So I've actually very recently been doing some analysis. And it doesn't seem that sexual selection is one of the driving mechanisms here. So from some studies I was doing, they mate completely randomly 
which was a shock for most people involved. But I've also done some predation studies, which were really fun. And so I sort of just presented different phenotypes of the beetles to these different predators to see predators sort of had an innate avoidance to the beetles, but also how they would react to the beetles over multiple encounters and if those behaviors would be different based on phenotype of the beetle. And so I found that it was very dependent on the predator. So mantids, for instance, never consumed any phenotype of any of the beetles, whereas Azteca ants showed highly differential predation rates depending on phenotype. So I'm really curious to know whether it might be predation that might be one of the driving forces. And you're mentioning they're actually walking out and finding them when you're there in the field. And geneticists end up spending a lot of time behind the desk. So maybe you could tell us what it was like actually going out into the field and collecting all of these samples because you collected thousands of them. Right. And so I came from that sort of background. I'd spent a lot of time in the lab and just was mainly at a bench. Um, And so I got a fellowship that was a joint partnership between my university and the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, which allowed students to go out into the field and sort of explore their interests. Um, So it was incredible to just get to go to so many different populations across Panama, collecting them, talking with people. Um, it It was a really great experience. Yeah, perfect. And it sounds like you were saying there you were kind of walking through the forest, you were finding these beetles, and you started thinking about the underlying genetics while you were there in the field. And it sounds like the concept for this paper kind of arose there. So what sort of explicitly were the questions that you were thinking about that you want to cover in this work? Right. So I met my collaborator, Dr. Don Winter, before we started the hike and everything. And we had a great rapport. And he told me previously about these metallic beetles that he had been working with sort of on and off for 40 years or so. And at the time, you know, I I had never been to the tropics. And so I couldn't actually visualize a metallic beetle. And so I spent the whole day trying to find this beetle. And finally, after eight or nine hours or so, I finally flip over a leaf and I see this metallic beetle. And I was just immediately struck. And that's when I showed it to Dr. Don. And he mentioned that that was only one of the color variants and that the others don't even have this metallic coloration, but are actually red and black or some variation of that. And me being more of a geneticist. It was just the first question I sort of asked. And so we had dinner with the rest of the field crew that later that evening. Um, and that's what I brought up. I brought up if, if anyone knew the genetic basis of the color variation, how it was inherited or anything like that. And he mentioned that at that point, it was mostly unknown and unstudied. And it was just, I was hooked immediately. Perfect. And it looks like one of the main ways that you're trying to uncover the genetic basis of this was through doing experimental crosses. Maybe you could explain a bit about that and whether or not they're very fussy in their partners or whether or not they were good at giving you these crossed phenotypes. Uh, well, I should first say that many people were convinced that this wasn't a single species for quite a long time that Don had been working with these beetles. But randomly sort of in the field as he had been out collecting for other projects, he had noticed different color phenotypes mating. And so he personally was convinced that they were the same species, but had never done the sort of 
the actual experiment all laid out to, to make that happen. And so these crosses, they were generated by many, many people. There were thousands of crosses, so many beetles. And in the end, they ended up being really easy to rear and to breed. And so we would just take males and females of the different color phenotypes and sort of place them together in, in Tupperware and fed them daily and allowed them to lay their egg clutches. And from there, we could count as we would raise their egg clutches to adulthood, the different phenotypes that we would see in each egg clutch produced. And in that way, just over thousands of offspring and thousands of egg clutches, we could actually pinpoint the mode of inheritance for a color pattern. That sounds both really exciting, but also just really painful in the amount of work that you have to do. <laughs> it was. It's exciting to once you have all the results and you can say like, oh, these five phenotypes, we can actually say like, this is how they're inherited. And that it's a really simple, beautiful pattern. But the actual day-to-day work is cleaning a lot of beetle cages and collecting just a lot of leaves. So yeah, with, with the funny dichotomy. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you've mentioned the inheritance there a couple of times, and we are a genetics journal, a genetics podcast. So what were you finding out about the inheritance pattern of these beetles? I think one of the most striking things that we noticed fairly immediately is this metallic phenotype is only presented in the homozygous recessive state. And so it was incredible to sort of breed two beetles who do not display this metallic coloration. And then at least a quarter of the offspring get some individuals who had these striking metallic stripes. And so after many, many crosses and sort of trying to figure out what was happening here, we could finally tell, okay, when we placed two heterozygous individuals of a different phenotype, one quarter of their offspring display these metallic stripes. Um, And then when you breed only metallic individuals, you consistently will get only metallic offspring. That was sort of the final piece to realizing that this is our recessive phenotype. Perfect. So, I mean, that's classical Mendelian-style genetic studies. But in this paper, you've also done some work. So you looked at some genome sizes and you did some next-generation sequencing, which allowed you to identify some genomic loci associated with these color patterns. So how did that data feed into helping you understand these phenotypes? Right. So we knew that this sort of classic Mendelian inheritance mode would be incredibly useful and really important for sort of future work. But like I said, I'm really interested in genetics and genomics as well. And so I want to sort of cultivate this system. Um, And so one thing I was interested in was, well, how do these phenotypes cluster genetically if they come from a single population? Like, do we see that metallic individuals genetically tend to only resemble metallic individuals and vice versa with the other phenotypes? So we took three phenotypes who all came from the same geographic population, um, and we sequenced them using RAD sequencing, um, which is a extremely useful tool, especially for non-model organisms like this one. Um, And we found that they do not cluster by phenotype, which is a really exciting result. And so we got mostly sort of a level playing field when we looked at just a broad genome scan. And then we had these pinpoints of really high genetic differentiation. And so those are going to be sort of the points that we focus on for future genomic work with this species as possibly or potentially being areas of the genome that might be contributing to the differences in color pattern phenotype. Nice. So, I mean, I guess at this stage, you don't really know what those outlier loci might be? No, we have no clue at this point, actually. Currently, I'm working on the next sort of phase of this is producing a linkage map. So hopefully that plus a fully sequenced genome, hopefully in the future, will help us pinpoint what are the actual loci that are contributing to this divergence in color. 
if you had to speculate slightly, do we have any idea how these color phenotypes are generated? Like what kind of pathways we might expect some of these outlier loci to fall within? Oh, that is a great question. Um, I mean, certainly MC1R has to play a role in sort of the black pigmentation. It's one of the things we're thinking at the moment. What's so fascinating, though, is the metallic structural coloration. And so the thing with this coloration is it's not iridescent, so it doesn't change depending on the angle that you're viewing. It's one true color, but it's structural. And so we're thinking that possibly what might be contributing to the metallic coloration that's produced in some of the offspring is actually completely developmental so that they have these layers of chitin that are laid down in the elytra and that this is what produces metallic structural coloration, um, but that it's likely completely a developmental pathways. Nice. So this could conceivably end up being a really good evolutionary genetic system and a really good evolutionary developmental system. Exactly. So I'm very excited to be involved with this system. It's just, it's so great for asking so many different questions, um, which I really love about it. That was Lynette Strickland, lead author on the recent heredity paper, Inheritance, Distribution, and Genetic Differentiation of a Color Polymorphism in Panamane Populations of the Tortoise Beetle. Now, I really like this paper as I have a real soft spot for the genetics of animal coloration. In fact, I even did a PhD in the topic. So, obviously, Lynette and I geeked out over this stuff for a while. And it was really interesting to hear all of the great ideas she has for the system. So you just know that this is the start of a really epic research journey. As always, you can find the paper on the Heredity website, www.nature.com forward slash hdy and while you're there you can discover more about the journal and how you can get your research published in it. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society and part of the Springer Nature Publishing Group. If you want to keep up to date with the journal you can follow us on Twitter at Heredity Journal and you can also follow the Genetic Society on Twitter at GenSocUK or you can find it on Facebook. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 